Welcome to Art on the Verge, the new 74 podcast series hosted by Bryce Walkowitz, discussing the drastically changing dynamics of the art world in the wake of the pandemic, from the way art is produced to how it's presented and experienced. We will also explore where creative thinking can take us and the potential of a collaborative culture in the new world. Let's join Bryce Walkowitz in conversation with artists, curators, educators, and collectors. Few have left as impactful a mark on the lives of children as has Oliver Jeffers through his poignant impression picture books. Originally from Belfast, Jeffers has written and illustrated 17 books and sold 12 million copies, which have been translated into 45 languages. He's equally recognized as a masterful fine artist weaving a steady dose of curiosity and humor into his artworks, which span a multitude of practices, including painting, illustration, collage, performance, and sculpture. His original artworks have been exhibited at such institutions as the Brooklyn Museum in New York, the Irish Museum of Modern Art in Dublin, the National Portrait Gallery in London, and the Palais Augsburg in Vienna. Jeffers has been the recipient of numerous awards, including a New York Times Best Illustrated Children's Book Award, participated at this year's TED conference, and recently released Here We Are, Notes for Living on Planet Earth for Apple TV. It is nothing short of an honor and a privilege to welcome my dear friend Oliver Jeffers to this edition of Art on the Verge, a collaboration with Istanbul 74. How are you, Oliver? I'm doing well, Bryce. Thank you for the lovely introduction there. So where are we finding you at this moment in time? You find us in Belfast, Northern Ireland, not where I thought I would be this time of year, but I don't think anybody is living the life that they thought they would be living at this point in time exactly. Sure thing. Absolutely. Well, it's uh, lovely to be speaking with you today. So, so let's start from the top, if you will. So often you speak about the power and impact of storytelling on you and your three brothers growing up in Northern Ireland and how the art of telling a good story started to seep into your pores. Do tell. Well, yeah, it's, uh, I think looking back, going that far back, um, yes, I've always been interested in, in telling stories and, and hearing stories. And the, the, it is a particularly Irish trait, the art of storytelling, you know, with a, a folklore that has come from, from Northern Ireland, all over Ireland, that just sort of is folk tales that people would have told of fairies and giants and all sorts. Um, but then also there is something about the particular humour and style of storytelling that is particularly Irish that I didn't really notice had seeped into my pores until I looked back and, and realised that it had. Everybody in Ireland is a storyteller from kids in the playground to uncles in the pub to grannies in the kitchen. It's it's just there and you kind of always learn the art of what it takes to tell a good story. And you get annoyed when somebody else starts telling a story and they they kind of ruin the punchline or they they rush it or they they don't time it right. Um, so it's, it's always been there. But I, I think before I recognised that I was a storyteller, it was always visual art that I was drawn to. I realised when I was in school that I could kind of get out of going to geography class by being available to decorate the set for the school play, things like that. And I, I was always able to keep my way out of trouble in a, in a pretty rough school in North Belfast by being the kid who would draw on the underside of the, the tough kids' skateboards or, or write their favourite band names or football teams on their school bags. So I'd always used art as, as this means for something else. But I've always been a very aesthetic person uh, and I've always thought of myself as, as a sort of as a, a visual problem solver before anything else. So the, a lot of the very early art that I was making was storytelling to a degree, um, not that I recognized it at the time, but it was always giving either the beginning, the middle, or the end of, of a story. 
and just in one of those forms and then letting the viewer pick up and fill in the rest of the information themselves. And, and it was quite an easy sort of slide from there into into making picture books. And yeah, I grew up with with three brothers, one older and and two younger. And somebody recently pointed out that there's a sense of loneliness and emptiness in all of my books and and perhaps that that might have been wishful thinking for some solitude uh, and there may be some truth to this because uh, I never really got a moment to myself uh, but that but that I think that's where it kind of comes from just this combining together of of a visual literacy with a joy of storytelling sure so growing up my father was many things to me he was a great dad a serviceable pitcher when I wanted to hit some baseballs but equally an adept or shall I say masterful draftsman. You know, the man could really draw and so can you. So speak if you would about this additional arrow in your quiver as you've described and how it's empowered you and ultimately your voice. Sure, yeah. You know, the, the funny thing is that I didn't actually realize that I had quite decent draftsman skills or, or could paint uh, relatively figuratively where a lot of the art that I was making was, was about economy. It was about trying to tell something or show something in its simplest possible terms. Um, and I, I fell into this line of art making that was partially looking at science uh, not long after my picture book started coming out. And um, I think my my joy of storytelling in, in visual form was, and so my first book happened and it was actually, it was originally supposed to be a series of, of canvases that were separate. At one point, I realized that this the, the notion of of this particular idea, which was somebody trying to catch a star, w- was better served as as a book, and and so that happened. It got published. It became a book, and I started making books. And in the fine art aspect of my practice, I realized the the paintings I was making were becoming less about stories and more about asking questions. And at this point, uh, a thing had happened where my wife and I were having a conversation about our different college experiences because she was an engineer and just how different the idea of um, science and engineering uh, are from art. You know, she was kind of completely befuddled with how you give somebody a grade in, in art whenever it's it's so vague what is right and what is wrong. Uh, and this really uncovered a whole basement of, of uh, curiosity for me. And I began making art about, is it possible to look at things scientifically um, and poetically at the same time. And in doing that, I realized that the the mathematical equations that I was kind of drawn to represented the cold clinical nature of, of science. And I started making figurative paintings to show the other aspects, you know, these classical Renaissance style paintings. And in order to do that, I needed to start attempting to do figurative painting and, and had no real formal training in it, but just was looking at, at books and actually looking at uh, sorts of paintings that I wanted to try and emulate and trying to work out just how they did it. Um, and it was through that that I realized that, you know, that I do have a knack for making something look like it's supposed to look like in, in, a, in a painterly form. And and especially when that came to to portraiture, it was really it was really only then that I, I realized that was this this other level that I could apply to my work. So I was shipped off to camp in Oxford, England when I was 15. You, on the other hand, were shipped off to Camp Dudley, State, <laughs> New right. York. 11 years old. What was that experience like to your recollection and your first visit to the U.S. and subsequent visits to the U.S.? I mean, it was completely mind-blowing. I The furthest I'd ever really been at that point from Northern Ireland was Scotland, and you can see Scotland on a good day across the Irish Sea. Uh, so I'd never really been terribly far from home. Um, 
my dad worked he basically he was the only connection that the ymca had dudley at that point was a ymca camp in in northern ireland for some uh, work that he was doing with uh with disabled students on on um placement programs so this scholarship opened up uh the director at the camp at the time had read about the the political troubles and, and turbulent and violent years that Belfast was going through in the 1980s. And he opened up the scholarship for one Catholic kid and one Protestant kid to go. And, and my older brother got to go and then I got to go because of that. And it was just, it was so eye-opening and mind-boggling uh, for me and for the kids that, that were around me. I mean, I remember being asked when I got there at 11 years old when people were like, you're from Ireland, huh? It was like, do they have electricity in Ireland? And just this, the, the notion of ignorance about what life was like somewhere for these kids was as radical a change as, as it was for me to see something that, at that point, the USA was very well recognizable because of films and television, and it all seemed so familiar yet so foreign at the same time. Uh, I made some lifelong friends there. You know, there's there's still a dozen people that I met that summer in 1990 that I'm, I'm still in, in constant touch with. Uh, and that led to a trip to New York City itself when I was, I think I was like 19 years old. And it was really then that, that things started to change where this city felt like the the epicenter of culture the the home of art and everything seemed possible and, and it, it whenever i went there and spent about a week there i vowed at some point in my life i would live there wonderful so your friend quentin blake i think said it best when he wrote and i quote oliver jeffers is adept at being two things and he manages to be both naturalist and conceptual at the same time and I would not be surprised, perhaps this book reveals it, if there are other Oliver Jeffers that I don't know yet, end quote. And so I ask you, Oliver, are there other Jeffers that we don't know yet? <laughs> well, the, possibly. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think I'm starting to surprise myself with the directions in which my art is taking and the the, the things that I, that are are becoming more important as as life goes on, as the as the world changes around me, and and you know I think one of those aspects that surprises me now that maybe wasn't existent five six years ago is the is the level of of activism that's in the work and the, the level of sort of speaking out and and trying to to be a part of shaping a new world. Um, there's also sculpture has come into my practice since uh, I think Quentin had had written that uh, it was very nice of him to do that. Uh, that that surprised me also, and and I think. I've always been slightly on the move. I've never rested on my laurels and on any one subject or any one form for too long. Because uh, for me, I think I'm a conceptual artist first and foremost. And the concept is what comes first. And the execution is by whatever means will best illustrate or, or uh, convey this this concept. Hence, whenever I was making art about science and emotion at the same time, I switched into figurative painting, which I had never really done before. So there, there likely will be things that will surprise me going forward too. You know, the people ask, would I ever, ever do another boy book? He's the character from How to Catch a Star. And the reality is that I probably wouldn't or couldn't because I am so fundamentally a different person today in 2020 than I was in, in 2001 when those stories were created. Uh, and so the art that I make represents who I am at that point and the questions that I'm asking of myself and of the world. And that will continue to evolve. Sure. You've also said there's a certain freedom and glorious obliviousness. I think we're in a moment where we all can no longer feign obliviousness to the harsh realities of our current times. And 
So where's your heart and your mind right now? In- well, my heart and my mind is that we're, we're, I think we're witnessing a moment in time where we'd always sort of thought that, we, you know, humanity can't really keep going like this. It's, it's, a, it's a one-way street to oblivion. It's got to stop at some point, right? It's got to stop. And that question was always being asked without anybody really ever doing anything about it. And I think we're looking at either the beginning of the end or the beginning of a U-turn because it, it has to be, it's one or the other. So the, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I remember my grandfather, he was never the sort of person who said the problem with today's youth is, but on one occasion he actually did say the problem with today's youth is, and he was right at that time. And this was around the turn of the century there. And he just says the problem with today's youth with, he looked around, he'd come up to the, the pub with us on Christmas Eve and he was looking around at everybody sort of showing off and this, the, the, the kind of the excess that was there from the last time he'd been in a pub generations before and, and he just says the problem with, with today's youth is that there's no great cause and that was true at that point but is no longer true and i think the greatest enemy that has faced humanity in recent years is well yes is climate change but it's it's apathy towards anything it's it's this idea of it's somebody else's problem and i don't have to do anything about it and i think that is gone now we're we're looking at a, a scenario at a world where most people below a certain age are feeling more galvanized than they have in in generations and generations and that the change has to come but hopefully it comes for the better and not for the worse absolutely well said so one idea or or trope if you will in your work over the years has been to hide elements of a painting it's seen in your work replacing Rihanna as well as Jesus and hidden variables and it's perhaps fermented as a concept in your greater oeuvre in your dipped paintings or Speak, if you will, about this series and the significance of this work for you. Well, that actually, that was born um, from that body of work that was looking at science and art at the same time. And, and I was looking at these, uh, it was this notion that, yes, okay, science and an emotion, two totally different but equally valid ways of trying to understand the world around us. Is it possible to look at both at the same time is like, you know, is there such a thing as, as absolute truth or, or not? Because are there different versions of truth depending on stories? Uh, and I went about trying to examine that by uh, looking at mathematical conundrums and problems and quantum physics. There, there has been this quest to find the unifying theory of everything, something that ties up all aspects of, of our understanding of the world into, into one neat uh I think equation and and the the more that we go on the less likely that is because i think we're realizing just how important stories are how important emotional truths are that are devoid of fact and how how malleable facts are to suit the story of those who are telling it and so part of the 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 beginning stages of the dip painting was i was making art about heisenberg's uncertainty principle the idea that if something uh, can't be seen is it still there so I would make these paintings and at the, at the beginning it was arbitrary that it was a portrait it just happened to be what's going to be an interesting looking half painting so I painted my friend Esther and then I dipped the bottom half into a, a vat of paint just to see what would happen and in the course of doing that I was so preoccupied with just the mechanics of how to how much paint would be needed volume wise to get the the, the line up to a certain point and uh, other calculations like that that I forgot to take a photograph of the painting before I dipped it in and so that painting got exhibited in the Brooklyn Museum a lot of people saw it really caught a life online unfortunately mostly because of 
people saying, look, you too can update a vintage painting and a whole raft of pretenders going out and buying old paintings and then putting a masking tape along the top and spray painting the bottom. And I still see bits and pieces of that. I was worried for a while, but that I think the, the just the, the the general kind of depth of, of the project that I've been doing has, has really sort of stepped it away from those pretenders. Um, but the idea was... Uh, or what came out of it was people asking me, did you really paint the whole thing or did you just paint the top half? And uh, the first question was people were saying, did you paint the bottom painting or did you find it? I said, no, I, I painted it. And they was like, well, did you really paint the, the top half or did you paint the whole thing? And I was said, I painted the whole thing. I just couldn't prove it because I forgot to take a photograph. But then about a year later, this uh, a photograph turned up of somebody had visited me in the studio the day before I dipped it and they had just they'd snapped a photograph of me and that painting was on the easel over my shoulder. And in the course of a year, when I looked at it again, my memory of that painting had changed, which was a, a very jarring emotion to experience because I painted the thing and I was like, Oh, I, I thought I, she was wearing a gray shirt, not a white one. And it was little things like that. And, and the same day is that my younger brother, Brian was visiting me and my wife in New York and uh, he normally lives in London and we were out for with a group of friends and he started telling this dinner table anecdote story about our mother and our mother had died 20 years previous to that uh, and the, he started telling the story wrong and normally I would have publicly corrected him for the sake of humor as much as anything else but this time I didn't because I was still remembering this this notion of remembering the painting wrong. And it suddenly crossed my mind that maybe he's not telling it wrong. Maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Uh, and so those two things together unlock this, this larger chasm that I wanted to explore, which is that of how memory informs identity. And so I started collecting other people, friends uh, to begin with, and then the cross-section of humanity went wider. And all of the people that I've painted and have selected to paint um, all of the experience of the unifying experience of having witnessed death close hand, whether that's they've lost a parent or a child or a partner, they uh, have been a, a, PM, a medic or, and I interview them all at length about their experiences, paint that portrait and then try and recreate the, the conditions of the first dip by inviting a very small handful of people to come along, witness the painting in full without taking any photographs. And then as part of a ceremony, I submerge it in paint to be forever altered or completed. Uh, and then I interview those people about what they remember seeing that night. And then again, either months or years later. It's a beautiful body of work, um, no, no question about it. So we recently lost one of the true behemoths of the graphic design world, Milton Glaser, yes, who yes. said, quote, to design is to communicate clearly by whatever means you can control or master, end quote. And so I ask you, Oliver, your work is spread across a multitude of disciplines. And so what's the impetus at the start of a project relative to the medium? of The impetus at the start is, is to, to be understood. Um, nobody ever will be completely understood because there's always going to be that, that little bit of alteration, that little bit of uh, translation gone wrong in between projection and reception of, of, a, of an idea because nobody will ever see the world exactly like I see it. But the, the, the want is there. The want is to be able to show people the way that I see the world. But it's also the, just the simple joy of, of making, of making something that feels good to make, that looks right whenever it's completed. Uh, so the, the painter Michael Borman once said that when in every painting, there's a little moment that's a knife in the eye. 
where he gets it just right. There's that one connection of or combination of brushstrokes, and I know exactly what he means by that. And and I I search for those moments, and it's it, it is very joyous. So it's it's quite selfish in a lot of ways in terms of looking for pleasure for myself, but it's also a want to be connected and to be part of a, a conversation that is larger than I am. So I think it is that, and it's it's a combination of storytelling and simplifying and showing a, a potential world, but it's also a, a, a matter of curiosity and asking questions and, and trying to make people think differently and also to laugh. It's it's a lot of things, and I've never really thought about it like this before, but and, and I'm not sure I could define it as to, to one particular reason. Sure. So uh, let, let's talk about characters uh, for a moment. Characters, be they causes companions or murakami's mr dob charles schultz's charlie brown up through walt disney's mickey mouse the power of recognizable characters has had a lasting impression impact for artists well you've created countless characters who frankly are quite recognizable and so have you felt an urge to focus more on one in particular toward the creation of a true signature no, I haven't. And it's it's funny, It's but I wonder if I'm rebelling against that because it's one of those ones where it will be the horse driving the cart. All of the characters that have appeared in my book have only appeared at most once or twice. And then every single project, it's a different character. Every book project, rather, is a is a different character that kind of comes up. And there's there's very few repeated ones. And, um, and I wonder if I've shied away from trying to have a repeated one because I have an inkling that I know that that's what people kind of want from me. And I've, I've always sort of tried to share away from leaning into the expectation or, or making work that, that relies on satisfying other people's expectations. If, do you know what I mean by that? Yes. Uh, so right. it's something that has crossed my mind. It was like, if I were to revisit a character or try and conceive of a character that would be around and that would be sort of singular signature and, and recognizable, what would that be? And I don't know if... I don't think it would happen successfully if it was created from that launch pad. Whereas where it may be more successful is if I have a concept that's got multiple prongs to it and I need some sort of consistency between them. What's the best way to do that? And and sort of having a character born through through those means that are slightly left of center um, and less on the nose would, would probably be the way in which I would manage to do it successfully as, as opposed to People want to see a character. What's that character going to be? Sure, I understand. Now, we collaborated on a recent exhibition in my gallery in January 2019 titled For All We Know. It was your first solo exhibition in New York, and it expanded on years of observation from the history of your upbringing in Belfast to contemporary New York City. And omnipresent throughout the exhibition were paintings of the night sky and the ocean, the two great and unknown frontiers. Speak, if you would, about the concept and the impetus behind the exhibition. Of course, yeah. Um, so when, whenever I was making the book Here We Are, which was, a, a, it's, it's called Here We Are, Notes for Living on Planet Earth. It was kind of a guidebook that I wrote for my infant son at the time. It's like, you're new to this planet. Here's basically what you need to know. And it's a picture book. And, and at the time that I was doing it, I was doing a lot of research into the, the three different pillars of that book, which were... Uh, what it is to be a socially responsible person, what it is to be an environmentally responsible person and with parenthood in both of those aspects, but then also just the idea of being a human being and, and our place in the cosmos. Um, so looking at Earth from, from a distance, and, and I was doing a lot of research 
about astronauts who had gone into space and gone to the moon and had looked back on on Earth and this thing called the overview effect, which is any of the astronauts who have ever gone far enough away from the planet and have looked back on it and seen it as a single object have had a profound paradigm shift in the way in which they think about things. And most of them come back sort of realizing just how constructed the idea of borders are, because whenever you see uh, Earth from space, it's pretty obvious that it's all one single system, um, not multiple independent systems. So whenever I was looking at that and the language that these astronauts were using, and it was a very powerful notion, I thought, this the idea that, that we are a single entity as humanity and we are not separate from our environment, but we are but a part of it. A lot of that reminded me of the, the language that I had been using to look at Northern Ireland from the distance of New York from across an ocean, because, you know, there I grew up in a country that was that was war torn politically, um, very violent, uh, a lot of revenge violence. And it had got to a point where it was it was tit for tat. Uh, vengeance style politics that had gone on for so long that people couldn't even really remember what they were fighting about in the first place to a certain degree or what they even really wanted. And what struck me is when I left Belfast and when I came to New York, I was even having to explain to English people and even to people from the Republic of Ireland, which is the part down south on this island of Ireland, what was actually happening and, and what, what it was. And it just it, it struck me dumb that nobody outside of the tiny six counties of, of where I grew up even remotely cared about the political strife and struggle that they were doing. And it just seemed like such a tragic waste of energy. And like those astronauts, when they were looking back on Earth and they realized just the the damage that has been done in the name of nationalism is a tragic waste of energy. And, and so I, I saw this connection between these imaginary lines across the land in the form of borders and uh, I can't remember who it was said now that uh, patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. Um, but the, I've always been deeply suspicious of nationalism and patriotism and, and isolationism. And, and I think that definitely comes from growing up with the political and national uncertainty of, of Belfast in the 70s and 80s. Um, and just, you know, it's, it's uh, just man-made borders sort of show how people treat other people. But coupled with that, with the the idea of, of imaginary lines across the sky as well, where humanity has often pitted itself in a, we've, we've anchored ourselves in a, in a deeply vast and unknown cosmos by showing that these, uh, these, these collection of stars look like images when you draw these lines between them. And that therefore we are at the center of the universe. And, and of course, these collections of stars only look like that from the perspective here on earth. And it's completely, it's completely made up and it's there's the egotism that was maybe integral to the success of human civilization but we have forgotten our place in the grander cosmos and that that we really are making everything up as we go along so given this seeming inability for people to comprehend just the singularity of our planet earth it's i, I feel like it's my job to tell remind and and show people the this is the most urgent story that humanity needs to rally around. And, and ultimately, that's what that body of work was, partly to do with climate change, partly to do with uh, with anti-nationalism, partly to do with this the notion of uh, tit-for-tat revenge, Northern Irish violence. Absolutely. Well, at this time, I want to thank you, Oliver. I think I speak for everyone listening that we collectively urge and encourage your continued curiosity and that your moral compass stay as always true and steady, my friend. And I look forward to sharing a Guinness with you very soon. Cheers. Bye.
Oh, don't Bryce. The pubs have been closed here for three months. I haven't had a Guinness in, in months and months. <laughs> we'll figure it out when you're back in New York. All right. Stay well. All right. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Bye bye.